Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 2. As you're going there or finding your place there, again, just want to remind you that the, the Gospels all start out a little bit differently. Four Gospels with four different what we would call prologues or entry points uh, into presenting the Gospel of Jesus, presenting Jesus of the Gospel. They all converge and start to become more similar when they start dealing with John the Baptist. But until then, they each have a different purpose and each have a different contribution to the beginnings of the gospel. And that's always important to understand. Of course, liberal scholars will say, oh, they should all be the same, and because they're not, therefore, it's an invalid uh, set of gospels here. And I'm just like, it's always interesting how they make the rules of what the gospel should be, and because the gospels don't live up to their arbitrary rules, their scholarly rules, therefore, the gospels aren't true. Always, always amazes me. Genesis 3 has God said Satan's always up to his old tricks we want to remember that these four gospels all open with and make it clear that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah there's no question of what he is there's no question that that is the purpose of these gospels there's no question that that is their core message Jesus is the Messiah and all four gospels in their prologues make it very clear that Jesus is also the Son of God. There's no question that that's what they present. There's no doubt. Anybody tries to cast doubt, just remember that's just Genesis 3. Satan has God said. Because the Gospels are simple, plain, and read, and their simple plainness, which they were designed to be read as. Gospels were not, read, were not <clears throat> presented to scholars. They were presented to people of humble faith. And for people of humble faith, they can read those like you, can read it straight, plain, and you'll see that the very clarity of the Gospels is that Jesus is the Son of God. When we come down to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew in chapter 1 has outlined the genealogy of Jesus to present him as the legitimate heir of the Abrahamic and Davidic promises and covenants. Matthew felt that that genealogy established beyond any doubt the credibility of Jesus. However, he chose to organize it. He's the narrator. He's the author. He was allowed to do that in his day. Remember, Matthew thought that that organization of the genealogy into three sets of 14 was just fine and would carry the day, would carry his purpose of establishing the credentials of Jesus. Matthew also, at the end of that chapter, records the basic events of Jesus' conception and birth to present him as no less than Son of God. No less than that. And so now we come to Matthew chapter 2. It's a brief portion of the early period of his life, and we see both the acceptance of Jesus by an unexpected crew and the opposition to Jesus by an unsurprising And so let's just pray again and ask that the Lord be with us as we look at his word and ask him to bless it to us. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne, and it is a throne of grace, and it is a throne of majesty, it is a throne of power, you're just awesome. Lord, we look at your creation, vast, immense, a variety that's inexpressible, Knowledge, wisdom, and power just emanating from it in every 
every pulse. Lord, it all declares your glory. And yet here we come to these gospels and we see a greater glory. Something greater than creation itself is the creator. And here we see you bringing your son into the world. We can't fathom how that happened. We can't fathom how the eternal God could unite to himself a human person who is called the son of God. We just can't fathom that. That's a mystery beyond description. And yet here we are reading about it in the pages before us. A mystery realized. And Lord, we pray that as we uh, look today at these magi and try to understand who they are and what they came to Jerusalem for and uh, their question, their assumptions, their assertions, and the responses that people had to it, the Lord, this would become meaningful to us. Matthew wrote these things down. He didn't write them down to fill paper. Um, he wrote them down by your own Holy Spirit because these are needful for us. And so, Lord, just ask that you would make our minds clear today as we have to get our heads around uh, some realities of history and realities of culture that are so different from our own and to understand what this passage brings to us because it is part of your great gospel of Jesus. And we ask in his name, amen. Matthew chapter two, verses one and two. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So this is an interesting opening. Put a little graph up here, not because I didn't have anything else to do, but because I just always think it's interesting how these four gospels open so uniquely. And in particular, Matthew here, he talks about things that you don't find in any other gospel. But when you look at the opening of the gospels and you sort of do a little word count and you see that Matthew has about, oh, about a thousand words in his opening, this is up to but not including the material on John the Baptist. Matthew has about a thousand words. Mark has 13 words. Luke has closer to about, I don't know, 2,500, 2,700 words. And John's in there at about 250 words. And so obviously, just so you do a word count, you're going to expect there's going to be different material placed there for different reasons and placed there to complement each other. And I just find it interesting how the Gospels all contribute to this total picture that is very amazing. Now Matthew <clears throat> presents to us in chapter 2, I guess the chapter divisions are ours, not Matthew's, but... He presents some new pieces of historical information that was not given in the previous section. The previous section focused on the divine agency of the conception of Jesus. She is pregnant. She has with child by the Holy Spirit, told to us twice. Joseph is not the biological father. We're told that all throughout that chapter. So that was the emphasis, because that was the most important emphasis, how this person came into being, but now we're going to see what happens to him immediately after his birth. And so Matthew starts out this section by filling in the bigger picture. And we are given the fact of Jesus' birth, 
We're given the time of Jesus' birth, and we're given the place of Jesus' birth. Kind of very interesting, and that information you'd want to know. We're not giving his birth weight, which everybody probably is wondering. Uh, Mary will be able to tell you that one day. Um, But Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king. That's how Matthew opens. For us, this is like, okay, uh, Bethlehem, I'm pretty sure I've sung about it for years, but I bet I couldn't place it on a map. All right? I won't ask for hands, but I'm wondering how many of you can say, oh, yeah, I know where Bethlehem is. In the days of Herod the king, we know Herod the king was a dirty rat, but we don't really know a whole lot about him. We don't really know when his days were. We just know it was sometime back in the ancient world around 0 AD, if there is such a thing. So let's look at this for a minute, because Matthew puts it before us. He wants us to be able to understand a gospel that is rooted rock solid in human history, in human geography, and in human personality. This is not a fable. This is not a story. This is not something that the first century Christians made up, as scholars want to say. So after Jesus was born, he was in Bethlehem of Judea. We're, We're told that here is this place. Bethlehem of Judea, and we would say Columbia, South Carolina. They say Bethlehem of Judea. We would say Greenville, South Carolina. And the reason you got to say Greenville, South Carolina is to distinguish it from what city that people confuse it with all the time? Greenville, North Carolina, right? So we understand the problem because actually you can read in Joshua 19.15 that there was another Bethlehem in Israel... And so Bethlehem of Judea, it's important to put that down or the postal mail might get confused and go to the wrong place. It's Bethlehem of Judea. Now Bethlehem of Judea is a very interesting town. Today it's, you know, it's, it's an, we would call it probably a small place. It's a city up on a hill. It lives basically off of the tourist industry, as you can imagine, and I believe it's in Palestinian hands. So actually, uh, Israelites don't go to get to go to visit Bethlehem. Only we do, okay? Only foreigners can, not Israelites. Bethlehem is about six miles south of Jerusalem. It means house of bread. Bethlehem or combinations of Bethlehem occur 53 times in the Bible. And it has... A 3,700-year history, at least. It's probably farther than that. But when we just take the biblical account, we first hear of Bethlehem, or what was called Ephrathah, in the life of Jacob. That was 3,700 years ago. You could go there today and you could see the tomb of Rachel because she was buried there. If you kind of go into some cities today, you'll say, oh, this is such and such a city, home of some famous baseball player, or maybe some famous movie star. Well, if you have a sign like that going into Bethlehem today, it would be home of Ibzan the judge. Any of you all remember about Ibzan? It was also the town of Micah's Levite, the story of Micah, Judges 17. It was the home of that unfortunate woman, the concubine of Judges 19. It's the setting of Ruth and Boaz. 
It's the home of David the king, 1 Samuel 16. It's the rally point of the mighty men of valor as 2 Samuel is being brought to a close, 2 Samuel 23. So this city, for being a little city, actually has a lot of things it could put on its home of, home of, this is the place of, sign as you go into the town. Significant place. In Genesis 35, 19, we're there where Rachel is giving birth to Benjamin and she's dying. It came about as her soul was departing before she died that she named him Benoni. But his father, Jacob, called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Remember when I first read this story, this part of the story of Rachel dying, I thought, why is that there? And I really had this sense that, I mean, Jacob really loved Rachel. You remember the whole story of how they met. He was supposed to marry Rachel. He just loved her. He was just so in love with her. The seven years he had to serve her went by as nothing. He goes in to the wedding, and as they were wont to do, they had a little bit more to drink than maybe we would consider they should. And he woke up the next morning with Leah in his bed and not Rachel. He had been deceived by his uncle Laban. And so he had to work seven more years to marry Rachel. And he probably married her at that time, but it's like, okay, I've got to do seven more years now to get what I actually bargained for. But Jacob loved Rachel. And this small little sort of cul-de-sac statement in the story that she died is just a, it's a gripping thing. This is someone whom Jacob just loved deeply. We know that's true because in Genesis 48, 7, as he is recounting again his own history before his death, he refers to it again. And there's a lot of things he could have said, and we're talking about the history of redemption, and he pauses and he refers to this woman who, as the picture is trying to present there, he had met decades earlier. They were married for about 20 years. And Jacob speaks these things, and these things are recorded 40 years after her death. It's been 40 years since Rachel died. Now, as for me, when I came from Padden, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem, the first places we see it, is this place that's a telling story. I'm sure someone who's a novelist, they kind of novelize sometimes stories in the Bible, which is okay, as long as you don't embellish it, you know, embellish the truth away. This would make a great story. Maybe someone's already done it, and I just don't get out much and don't know. Jacob loved Rachel. She was buried in Bethlehem. In Judges chapter 12, 8 through 10, now, Ebzon of Bethlehem judged Israel after the former judge. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. So you all with four, five, six kids. I don't want to hear any complaints. This guy had 60 children. 
30 sons and 30 daughters whom he gave in marriage outside the family. That is, he gave the daughters to people outside the family. And he brought 30 daughters from the outside for his sons. So here's the true mail order bride scenario. And maybe he mail ordered his daughters out. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried in Bethlehem. That's all it's said of this man. He just had children, a whole pile of them. He judged Israel. Lived in Bethlehem. Judges 17, 7 through 8. And there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite. And he was staying there. Then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem and Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And he made his journey. As he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Now, if you haven't listened to the message called 10 Shekels in a Shirt preached, gosh, 50, 60 years ago, it's one of the most awesome messages that you'll listen to on mission work. I really, I really recommend it. But it's about the story of Micah, who hired this Levi for 10 shekels and a shirt, the title of the message, so that this Levite could preside over his house of gods unto Jehovah. And it's just an illustration of how confused Israel was at the time. We're going to have a Levite priest of Jehovah, and he's going to preside over a house of Baal, a house that's dedicated to Jehovah, and this was the era of the judges. Everyone did that, which was right in their own eyes. He thought it was right. He thought it was a good thing. And he hires this Levite, the Levite who was for sale, to sell his religious services, a blight on the ministry of God. So, not so great a story, but that's in Bethlehem, and, or about Bethlehem. The Levite came from there. Judges 19, 1, it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. Some of you may know the story. It's not a pleasant one. She's eventually abused and murdered. And the story goes for another chapter. But that woman was from Bethlehem young girl. And I always thought, here is this young girl thinking she was going to have a great life, hooks up with this Levite. Some things happen and she ends up, her life is destroyed and they're her parents having to deal with it. Bethlehem. And Ruth, the whole story of Ruth now came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Many of us know the rest of the story. And the whole setting of Ruth, the story of Ruth, this amazing story, is Bethlehem of Judea. That story takes place about 1200 B.C. And if you look at the end of Ruth... Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. To Hezron was born Ram. To Ram, Aminadab. And to Aminadab was born Nashon. And to Nashon, Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz. And to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. 
and to Jesse was born David. Hence, to you this day there is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, Bethlehem. Ruth advances the genealogy of David the king from this setting of this city in Judea. 1 Samuel 16, God told Samuel to go to the house of Jesse of Bethlehem and to anoint someone king. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. 1 Samuel 16, 4, it's 4 through 13. These are just little excerpts. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So here we have the anointing of David himself occurring at Bethlehem. A lot of stuff's happened in this city, and it wasn't a very big city at that time. David anointed by Saul, or by Samuel. 2 Samuel 23, this has always been an interesting place to me. It's sort of the end of 2 Samuel. It's kind of a wrap-up. Not sure about historically when it happened. But David was in his fortified stronghold with his troops. This is around probably 980 B.C. And the Philistines were garrisoned a few miles south down in Bethlehem. And as soldiers will do, will talk when they're kind of idle, there's no battle going on. David had a craving, and he said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. My old hometown, I remember that well. And I wish someone would just go and get me some water from there. Bring back old memories. But the Philistines are there. I mean, that's their garrison. That's their, where they're headquartered. So three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines. They went down, broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out unto the Lord. So the guys weren't saying, wait a minute, David, we just got you this water, and now you're not drinking it. He poured it out to someone higher. He said, this isn't mine to have. These men risked their lives. And the rest of the chapter talks about the mighty men of David. I'm always reminded of 1 John, <clears throat> where John is uh, talking about the young men who are strong and the word of God abides in them and the evil one has overcome them now. Mighty men of valor. This is Bethlehem. I'm just taking you through this tour so that when you read that Matthew records that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it's got, a, it's got a good heritage to it. It's not just some unknown city that Mary and Joseph happened to stop at because, okay, I'm ready to have the baby. We can't go any further. It was something designated by God long before. And a lot of stuff happened there. And so with all these, I guess, trophies, if you will, of people and events that are famous, some infamous, that have happened in this little town of Bethlehem, it now becomes immortalized in a unique way, in a way it could never, never be outdone. This is the birthplace of Jesus, the Messiah. Matthew wants us to know that. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. 
He also wants us to know that Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. So Matthew moves from the where was Jesus born to the when of, where, of Jesus being born. Now Herod, usually called Herod the Great in history, he's Herod the king in the Bible. Herod was born in 73 B.C. He was made king by the Romans in 40 B.C. They installed him as king. Now, the Romans were kind of new to Palestine. They'd come and conquered the place about 23 years before this because the place was just unsettled, a lot of stuff going on. You just, just know that Palestine is on that corridor between Egypt, one world power, and Mesopotamia, the home of multiple uh, <clears throat> world powers. And whenever anybody wanted to conquer the world, they had to conquer Egypt, so you had to come through Palestine to get to Egypt. And whenever Egypt wanted to conquer the world, it had to go up through Palestine to get to everybody else. So Palestine, no matter what war happened, Palestine took it on the chin. And so it was a mess of a place. To be king there, who would want to? I mean, anybody want to go on vacation to the Sahara Desert? Might be nice to visit for a day, but after that... I mean, it's just not a place you really think of you want to be in. I'm just wondering, you know, that, that little stretch called the Levant. Would you really want to be a king there? When you got, all you got to do is look at history, you get clobbered all the time. But Herod the Great was born in 73 B.C. He was an Idumean. He was not a Jew. Installed in 40 B.C. as king, and he died in 4 B.C., so the days of Herod the king would have to be sometime within those two boundaries, 40 B.C. and 4 B.C. Notice some of the people of history that he was around, and you might start to get a little better sense that, hey, Herod was, was in a time that was actually interesting. There was Julius Caesar, Cleopatra, Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, real emperor. Mark Antony and all those stories. All that was going on, and Herod the Great actually was involved in all of that intrigue. Now, he was involved sort of in a tertiary way, but he knew Mark Antony and was sort of supporting Mark Antony, and so when Mark Antony got whacked and <clears throat> Octavian became Caesar Augustus, he had to go to Rome and talk his way out of supporting the emperor's former archenemy, and he actually did it. He was a shrewd guy. And he did it in an interesting way. He went to Caesar Augustus, Octavian, in Rome, and he says, yes, I know I used to support your enemy, and I was very faithful to him, but if you'll, you know, you know put me, you know, keep me around, I'll be that faithful to you. And Octavian's probably going, well, that's a new angle on something. And Octavian said, okay, you go be king. King of Palestine, Judea. Herod the Great. Now, we know he died in 4 B.C. because Josephus, that ancient historian of that time, reports that an eclipse of the moon, remember he lived during this time, the eclipse of the moon uh, happened shortly before Herod's death. Now, you can ca calculate eclipses. It's mathematical. And so if you calculate the eclipse that Josephus is talking about, you are at March 
12 or 13 and 4 BC. That happened just shortly before Herod died. We don't know how shortly, but probably within a few weeks or a month or so. And so Herod died in 4 BC. We also have coins minted by Herod's sons who took over in 4 BC. Now, anybody who knows Herod knows that you're not going to mint any coins that don't have Herod's image on it while Herod's in power. And Herod's sons minted coins in 4 BC that didn't have Herod's image on it. That would not happen if Herod was not dead. Now, as anything, there's a bunch of scholars who want to debate all this for who, who knows what reason. It sells books, I guess. But it's pretty certain that's when he died. So if that's when Herod died, that's around when Jesus was born. Because he was born in the days of Herod, the king. So we have some boundaries there. Now we're given another chronological detail for the main event that Matthew is introducing. These Magi arrive in Jerusalem after Jesus was born. Now, as we go through this, we're going to start to get some myth busters, by the way. All of the lore that has surrounded Christmas and sort of uh, accrued to the Christmas story over 2,000 years doesn't exactly, some of it doesn't exactly have its roots in the scripture. So we'll talk about it a little bit later as we accumulate the facts of Matthew. So these guys arrived in Jerusalem after Jesus was born, but before Herod was killed, because Herod is part, or died, because Herod is part of this story. And these are Magi from the east that arrived in Jerusalem. And remember, Matthew introduces all this because he wants this setting to be in our minds. He wants us to be clear. He wants us to understand it. And the Magi, plural for Magus, this is Matthew's main focus of this section. It's what structures the entire section. It's the reason he wrote this. And Magi refers to men of that era who were sort of the scholars or advisors of the day. They majored in studying astronomy and astrology, more astrology than anything, That was one of their big claims. And we meet these folks called Magi, this class of people that are all about a certain set of things. We meet them throughout the Old Testament. And so really the Magi shouldn't be all that unfamiliar to us who they are. The Greek word magos is derived from an old Persian word, magus. The term refers to the Persian priestly caste. As part of their religion, these priests paid particular attention to the stars and gained an international reputation for astrology, which was at that time highly regarded as science. Now, you could say, oh, what a bunch of silly bunch of people, but remember, they had no 
scientific tools that we have today to examine the universe and be clear about how, what makes the universe work. So they resorted to the only things that they thought they could come up with, the only things they knew, and they became very good at it, whatever that meant. I don't know what it's, how it's good to be an astrologer. I wouldn't know a good astrologer from a bad one. Don't ever want to. Their religious practices and the use of astrology caused derivatives of the term magi to be applied to the occult in general and led to our English word magic. So that's who these fellows were. In Genesis 41.8, we read, and here we are, the time of Joseph. Joseph is in prison. And the Pharaoh of Egypt has a dream. He wakes up, and in the morning, Genesis 41.8, in the morning his spirit, that is Pharaoh's spirit, was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, its magi, if you will. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So it's interesting that here we see that magicians and, quote, wise men are sort of a group of people that may have sort of different specialties, specializations, but they're basically the, the same crowd. They're kind of like Pharaoh's cabinet. You know how the, the president has a cabinet, and you've got the cabinet member who's, you know, the, the guy who represents uh, the military, the guy who represents economics, the person who represents this or that, health and human services. And so the president has all these cabinet members around him, and they help him understand all these different things, advise him. They take on roles looking into stuff more detail than the president has time himself to get into. And, and that's who these guys were. And so Pharaoh gathers all these magicians and all these wise men. They're sort of the same group, generally. And he told them his dreams. And they were supposed to interpret it. So this is what they did. I mean, they weren't out calculating the gross national product of Egypt. You didn't have the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Education you had guys whose specialty was to interpret dreams. Whatever that would look like. In Exodus chapter 7, 11 through 12, again, we're a few hundred years later, a different pharaoh, same place, different person. And here we have Moses and Aaron are there before pharaoh challenging him. And so pharaoh calls for the wise men and the sorcerers and they also, the magicians of Egypt, these are the, here's the same group. They did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down a staff and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So Aaron and Moses didn't have some cheap magician's trick. But again, here are these guys. They're over a space of hundreds of years. We've seen this same kind of group. You kind of wonder, you know, astrologers after a while... I'm pretty sure keep getting it wrong, or someone starts figuring out the generalizations they're making could fit just about anybody's circumstance. It's kind of like the fortune cookie. You know, everybody has to get that fortune cookie. We should have Providence cookies, but instead there's these fortune cookies. And we break them open, and there's some saying that could fit just about anybody at the table. So you'd think after a while, pharaohs, all these guys, would sort of get a 50-50 results from these fellows. 
and figure out that they're just sort of blowing smoke in his face. But apparently they didn't. They all sort of believed that this was happening. Everybody agreed that the stars controlled the world and history and human lives, and these guys knew how to read the stars, so we'll keep listening to them. Isaiah 44, again, we have in 700 B.C., almost a thousand years later, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. I've made all these things, these heavens that you guys think that you're going to read like tea leaves. I'm the one who made them, and I'm the one who spread them out. And I did it all on my own, all by myself. Causing the omens of the boasters to fail. People say, oh, that's an omen. That means something. That has some significance. You should do this or that. Making fools of the diviners who sort of do the same thing. Reading tea leaves or casting dice or whatever. Causing wise men who is just of the same group, same general functionality to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness showing that they really don't know what they're talking about then you have Daniel around 600 BC now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him then the king gave orders to call in the magicians and the conjurers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams so this is the world in which they operated So they came in and stood before the king, and as the passage goes on, we read, because of this, they couldn't couldn't do what the king wanted. The king basically said, hey, you guys are frauds. You probably already been suspecting it. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So that's that group, the sorcerers, etc. So the decree went forth that wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied, with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. So you start to get the picture of who these guys are. And these, these wise men are talked about 14 times in Daniel, and every time they try to make a showing, the true God gives real truth to Daniel, and things move forward. And so in 5 BC, we still have this group of people still around in the world. They've still been fooling the world that the stars make things happen and they know how to read them. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. The scholars have come. Again, this is the material that Matthew wants us to understand. And so in Magos, just to be clear, it's a Persian and or Babylonian wise man. That's where the term comes from. These guys have been around for a long time, but this term Magos is a Persian or, and it's Persian, and it's a Persian or Babylonian wise man and priest, they usually married those two together, who was expert in astrology, in the interpretation of dreams and various other secret arts. Some Magi honestly inquired after truth, I'm sure, though their tools were faulty, they were looking for truth, but many were, as they are today, many purveyors of false spirituality, they were rogues and charlatans. Nothing new under the sun. Now these guys came from the east. Matthew's very general as to this origin. They came from somewhere in the east, literally somewhere from the dawn. 
And all of us know, if you want to go outside and get yourself oriented like a compass, where's the east? That's where the sun rises. That's the dawn. Okay, so they would use that term. They came from the dawn, the place where the sun rises, the east. So they were from, as far as Jerusalem is here, west is the Mediterranean, east, a little bit up is all Mesopotamia across the desert there, all Mesopotamia and whatever empire happens to be in charge at the time. The cities stay the same, the people in charge just change. Now, some people get into discussions about this. Well, are they from Babylon? Are they the Chaldeans? Who exactly are they? And Matthew's kind of like, does it really matter who these guys were? They're from the east, and they're Magi. Go look at Daniel and figure out what they're like, who they are, what they do. And so the best thing we can do, rather than worry about exactly where they came from, we could acknowledge that Matthew was not specific on purpose. He had his reasons for his generalization. He didn't want details, insignificant details, to get in the way, as they often do with scholars. Now, I tried to dig up some of my old stuff from Daniel because I had some things I wanted to try to reuse and found out that all my material on Daniel has been corrupted somehow. My computer is probably good. That's probably what it deserves. But I was just reminded that we're talking about wise men. We're talking about Daniel's time. We're talking about the place outside of Jerusalem, which is Daniel in Babylon. And some of you may remember in chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar had that vision of the statue. We read about it. He was puzzled. No one could interpret it. No one could even tell him what it was. And this is that picture of representation of the dream he had and he saw a statue of a man whose head was gold which represents the kingdom of Babylon as it's interpreted he had this upper body of silver which became the empire of Persia that succeeded Babylon from about 500 to about 300 BC it had its waist and thighs were made of bronze which was the empire of Greece from about 330 to about 63 BC, and then this final empire, Rome. And the significance of this final empire is in the days of this final empire, a a stone is carved out of the mountain and comes and smashes the feet of the statue and the whole thing topples. Very interesting that God has actually given us a structure of the time frame between the deportation, remember Matthew, that last 14 was the deportation, the carrying away to Babylon until the Christ. Well, we have it outlined here and laid out in the book of Daniel. And so if someone says, well, Daniel, you know, wrote this stuff after the fact, that's just not true because we have the book of Daniel in the Septuagint written before this time <coughs> or before uh, at least some of these events that would have happened. It's pretty hard to predict empires even harder to make empires come to pass. But this is the history. You remember, the stone carved out of the mountain is Jesus. And we're reading about that stone being carved out of the mountain. We're watching it happen. Matthew chapter 2. The beginnings of it. So we are in that era of the sort of 
iron feet mixed with clay, Rome, the final version of it. Now remember, there was Alexander the Greek. Some of you may have had not had this in history, but there was this man from Greece called Alexander, and he went in a very brief amount of time, about 10 years, I think, went and conquered a huge part of the known world at that time. They call him great, I don't know why, he's just a murdering thug, in my opinion. But he's called great because he had this great military conquest where people were killed everywhere and slaughtered, and somehow that's called great. And if we look at the empire that he carved out, all that in the green, pretty vast. I mean, if you're a military person, it is an accomplishment. I mean, we're talking about several thousand miles here across in 10 years, back in 330 B.C. Well, when Alexander the Great died, the empire sort of fell apart and became... I don't know, divided up. And this is the background of the New Testament. You had down in Egypt the Ptolemaic Empire. You may have heard of those, the Ptolemies. You had over in what we would call modern-day Iran and Iraq, or in that time Persia, what used to be Persia, is called the Seleucid Empire. And then the two divisions over toward Greece and modern-day Turkey. And there was all this mess, all this fighting. The Ptolemies were fighting the Seleucids. That's where you get Antiochus Epiphanes. That's where you have the, the temple being desecrated by Antiochus around 168 B.C. Pig being sacrificed on the idol. All those things that all the what uh, <clears throat> futuristic eschatologists want to try to bring into the 70th week of Daniel yet to occur in history. All kind of crazy ideas, but it's been around for a while. That's all, that's all happening during that time. And Rome comes and gets another great person they call Herod the Great. And they set him up in Palestine. And he actually calms things down. And he was very, a very accomplished person, by the way. If you forgot that he was just wicked and awful... He was actually an accomplished person, very capable, the only one who actually settled that whole area for decades, brought relative peace to it, Herod the Great. Now about the time of the birth of Jesus, what used to be the empire where all the Seleucids were had now changed hands as it would all the time, and you had the Parthian Empire. But as I said before, the cities remained the same, Generally, the people remain the same. Nothing changes a whole lot other than who's in charge, who's ruling, who's burdening you with taxes, and you know, who's the awful person, awful dictator that you don't want to be under. Those are the only things that really change. This is where the Magi came from. So there's a history to these Magi, though we don't know specifically, we know generally, and Matthew, again, wants us to know that. Wherever they were from, they came to stay in Jerusalem. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they'd been on a journey, they arrived at Jerusalem. And if they were to take a journey, let's say they came from Babylon, they would travel this general route, the trade route. It's around 900 miles. It would take them around three or four months, depending on how well things went. 
And so this is a serious undertaking. And the reason we want to know that is because, well, gosh, these guys were serious about doing it. They got on their camels, the sort of sailboats of the desert, and they came to Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, the first thing they started asking was, where is he who's born king of the Jews? They tell people, hey, man, we've seen this star in the east. And this person, this king of the Jews, the one born king of the Jews, we've come to worship him. So wherever they are in Jerusalem, they're trying to find out people who know something can tell them the answer to their question. Now, the usual basic questions you have on any topic or any situation are, well, who, what, when, and where, the four W's. Who, what, when, and where. Now, it's part of the discussion, but we see that these wise men had the who down already. They weren't wondering anything other than We want to see the one who has been born king of the Jews. They knew who they were looking for. It wasn't vague. So that wasn't a question for them. They already knew who. And they already knew what they had come for. They've come to worship him. This was settled. And the wind had also been solved. We saw his star rising. There's a question about whether we should say in the east, it's just a star rising, meaning when the dawn happens, there's certain stars, like Venus, you can see sometimes in the mornings, and you have to get up early to see it, or sometimes at night, just depending on where it's happening. But we saw a star rising, so it was an early star, an early astronomical phenomenon. So they knew the who, they knew the what, they even knew the when. The question they had was the where. Where is he that was born king of the Jews? Now Matthew spends four verses answering this question of where, because that was the important thing. Jesus had been born in Bethlehem, he starts out with, and he demonstrates that he was born in this city of a gigantic pedigree with lots of famous and some infamous people. He was born there, not because it just happened, but because it was purposed. And we'll read about that. But before we go to read about that, let's look at these assumptions that the Magi had. Let's look a little bit more. These Magi came to Jerusalem and they had a specific set of knowledge. They had content that cannot come from a star. You got that? You see a star in the sky and you go, man, that's a bright star. There must be something going on in the sky. We would think today all the uh, technological stuff we know about, but back then they didn't know all that. So they saw a star happening like that, some astronomical event that was unusual. They saw it as meaning something. You can read all through the history of thousands of years where there would be a conjunction of planets and things, all these unusual astronomical events, rare events, and people go, oh, something's about to happen. They think that the stars are telling you about something. So the stars would not inform them that there was a king of the Jews about to be born. That would be something hard to guess from star patterns. So they had knowledge. They had knowledge of an event that is only found in one place, the Holy Scriptures of God. These particular Magi had come into contact with these Scriptures 
and as far as we could tell, had become true believers. There used to be guys that were sorcerers. There used to be guys that were, you know, all about the stars. And I'm pretty sure, you know, they, they weren't clear. They weren't broad in their understanding of things. So they still had the worldview of the day. But they had in some way come in contact with the Old Testament scriptures and had become true believers in the coming Messiah of God. Now, how do they come into contact with those scriptures? Well, you got to remember. Remember what, Matthew, that third, fourteenth group? The deportation of the Israelites. When they got deported from Israel, they got deported all over the east, past Nineveh, into Assyria, down into Babylon. And when those Jews got deported, some of them took with them their scriptures. And some of them took with them Jewish books about the scriptures, and some of them, many of them took Jewish traditions. And so this knowledge of God, the, the true knowledge of God that comes from the word of God, was disseminated all over during that time. And that started happening in 720 B.C. So this knowledge had been around in the East for hundreds of years. And they may have read, these, these wise men may have read and been taken with Numbers twenty four seventeen, where there's Balaam's prophecy. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter, king, rule, shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab, that time the, the arch enemy of Israel, and tear down all the sons of Sheth. So maybe these astrologers, who were always talking about the stars, always looking up, started thinking about this passage of Scripture. It would certainly interest them, wouldn't it? And God Almighty came down into their lives and brought them a conviction. This astronomical phenomena appears in the sky, something amazing, something highly unusual. And somehow these, this group of Magi connects that phenomena that God brings with this passage of Scripture and others like it. And they get into their minds and hearts, we want to go and see this king. We want to go and worship this king. There are other scriptures they could have been reading. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Isaiah chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 9, chapter 11, and so on. Micah, which Matthew's about to get to. Here are these Gentile men living in the darkness, bumbling around in a world controlled by astrology. And God meets them in the way that they can understand. And God brings into the sky a phenomena, whether a natural or a supernatural one, and he connects it with his word, and he connects it with faith in their hearts. 
And it's important to point out that the Greek here is very specific. Notice, it's not he who's going to be king of the Jews. It's he who has been born. It's an aorist participle. It has already happened. It's the born king of the Jews one. We want to see the born king of the Jews person. We want to know where he is. He was king of the Jews already. And it's why the Magi want to find him and worship him. He is already seen and understood by them to be invested with kingship. Born king of the Jews. Matthew here starts to present not only as Jesus' savior, but this whole chapter is around Herod the Great versus Jesus the king of the Jews. That's the point of this section. This is a tough item to nail down. We saw a star in the east. The language is minimal in perspective. It's a normal phenomenon. Is that it? Was it a conjunction of planets? That is, as we're looking at planets, they kind of cross close to each other and they look like one and therefore they're brighter. Is this a supernova of some star that blew up and, you know, takes months of that light streaming to us of that event? It just doesn't happen in an instant and go away? It's not like blowing out a candle. You're talking about blowing out a star. Is it a comet? Maybe some comet that traveled through our space that nobody really knows about because it only came this once so far? Is it a unique phenomenon, this star in the east? Is it a unique phenomenon? Is it a miraculous event of God as miraculous as creation itself. Why couldn't it be? People say, oh, well, you're just, you're just taking the easy way out. I'm like, no, I don't think it's the easy way out. Creating the universe is pretty hard. But God could have created a special phenomenon for the purpose of the birth of his son. I mean, what do we do for the birth of our children? It's a star in the east or a star rising how long did it appear for? When did they see it? How long had it appeared before? Did it appear on the, the actual day of Jesus' birth and now they understood it and they're making their way to find him? How did they make the connection between the star and those scriptures? We don't know these questions. Matthew doesn't spend a lot of time on them because they're unimportant. Here's what's important. These fellows came across an entire desert, a very dangerous trip, in order to come and worship this person. They came with an unwavering conviction that he was there. They just needed the final piece of the puzzle. Exactly where. And also, it worked. The star arose. The wise men came. They inquired. They found Jesus. They gave him presents. They worshiped him. And they moved on. They saw a star in the east. Notice that it's his star. It wasn't just any star. It wasn't just, oh, a few things happened, and so now we should think about it. They saw his star in the east. They had conviction and knowledge that this was his star, that this particular star, this particular phenomena, was for one singular purpose, pointing to the king of the Jews. And they had faith 
in that event of God. You see, human beings don't manipulate planets and stars. God does. Isn't that what we just read in Isaiah 44? Hey, I spread out the heavens. And you guys, you're just a bunch of fools thinking you have knowledge and power. His star in the east. Now, I don't know if you can see this very well. This picture was taken by my son-in-law on December 24th. Anybody know what happened on December 24th? This past December 24th? Yeah, a conjunction of the planets. Saturn and Jupiter came very close together, so to the naked eye, they went and brightened up. Now, I tried to find my picture of it because I actually took a picture of it, and I didn't have it. And so if you put your finger on the little dot to the left, which is actually Saturn, and the big dot in the forefront is Jupiter, is that a bright star or not? Now, this was just a typical day. I'd grab the grandchildren. We'd ride around our neighborhood. I'd get them to ride just as the sun was going down. It takes about a half an hour. So by the end of the ride, Jupiter and Saturn were starting to pop out. And so the big challenge was for the kids, okay, which one of us is going to find and see Jupiter first? And then, oh, who's going to see Saturn, that little teeny dot? I remember Paxton. He's sitting there looking up and (laughs) fell over on his bike and crashed and everything. I saw it first. That's a pretty bright star taken with just my camera. No zoom or anything. You see, phenomena happen. We don't look at the stars much. We don't think much of them. Just think it's a bunch of gas balls. But back then, they paid attention to these things, even though they interpreted it in a weird way. And finally, we saw his star in the east, his star. And we've come to worship him. This is no scholarly curiosity. This is not scholarly intellectualism. You read down in Matthew chapter uh, verse two or chapter two verse ten, and it says they were filled with exceeding joy. Does that sound like scholarly curiosity? These magi had traveled a thousand miles. Not to satisfy curiosity, but to satisfy a God-given logging of the heart. God had spoken to them through the scripture, combined with a unique astronomical phenomenon. And they want to come and honor the messianic king, the majestic king that those scriptures and that star pointed to. They want to give him the worship that is appropriate and commensurate with who he is. Now that's a bit of detail, historical detail items, but this is the content that Matthew starts out with and we need to be clear about it because we're not finished with these magi yet. But Matthew wants us to understand the setting, a setting which in in Matthew's day he didn't have to explain all this because everybody lived when there was magi. And stars rose in the east, and everybody thought in those terms and patterns. But know this, as Matthew begins to open his gospel, who appears on the scene? Who are the first believers that we encounter in this book? They are people who were once godless, confused magicians 
whom God spoke to in a way they can understand, the first contextualization of the gospel, if you will. Not contrary to the scripture, but based on and drawn from the scripture. Not dumbing down the scripture, but opening up the scripture. Filling their hearts with that scripture. The first true believers that we see in Matthew who are responding to Jesus in the way he should be responded to are not Jews, but Gentiles. And the least Gentiles to be expected, the intellectual crowd. So now you kind of understand that saying in John that Jesus came to his own people and his own people received him not. This is Matthew's version of that. And Matthew opens his gospel and things that he'll present all the way through that the gospel of God presented in the Holy Scriptures is not some Jewish thing with Gentiles tacked on to the end as an afterthought. But like it began with Abraham, it's a global thing with Gentiles front and center because we're all, as we read in Romans 3, We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all need redemption by the same Messiah, by the same blood, by the same means. And that redemption is the same for all and it can only be acquired by the same means by anybody, not by works, but by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is this final statement that we have here. We've come to worship him. And as I said last week, I will say it again. But I want it to be clear, reminded that people can confuse what I'm saying. We are not called upon to believe in a set of doctrines. We are called upon to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is defined by those doctrines. We have come to worship him. The proper response to the gospel is not, well, I believe a set of facts as true as they may be. The ultimate response to the gospel by any human being is I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who is the object and defined by those facts. We've come to worship him. Is that who you are this morning? Are you a person made in the image of God who has come ultimately to worship Jesus? Sure, when you're first saved, you're confused. You don't know what's going on. If you've been a big wreck, then you're, you're a wreck for a while and God has to clean you up until you finally come gradually, little by little, to clarity about things. But the clarity you come to is always. Jesus is the object of my faith. A Jesus defined by clear propositional statements in the scripture. But nevertheless, Jesus is the one I believe in. He's the one I worship. He's the one I love. He's the one I serve. He's the one I have hope in. And so if you're here this morning and you have not truly believed on that Jesus, he's just been sort of informational to you, someone you've known about but never known in person, then this morning is that time. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the fullness of his person, the God-man Messiah, 
Lord of creation. Come and worship him. And he will take care of all the issues in your life, the biggest ones being sin and death, the least ones being your bank account or your (coughs) retirement fund. Believe on Jesus. These men walked, traveled a thousand miles just to see him and worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for these men of faith. We thank you that these men, that you worked in their hearts a thousand miles away. You worked in their hearts through a means that seems strange to us. But you worked in their hearts through your scriptures. You brought them to faith in your son, a vague faith to be sure. A faith not full of detail, but it didn't have to be. It was faith in your coming Messiah, and they came and they got to see him and rejoice in him and worship him. You brought them there safely, and you brought them away safely in the midst of all the opposition. Lord, we just pray that the story would just make, always make sense to us and its significance would always fill our minds that Jesus is not just simply Savior, he's King, and that he's come to save all nations. And this is not how the gospel ends up, this is how the gospel begins. And Lord, always write on our hearts, always give to us and always maintain in our lives that blessed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.